You're going to love this. Just love it. Maybe not. Maybe not today. From Pacifica Radios, KPFK in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in LA. 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast. Not far from today's shooting, unfortunately. 93 FM WLRI Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org on the Stitcher app, TuneIn app on iTunes, streaming on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, fine affiliates in parts unknown, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. This is your broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger. Journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today, tonight, whenever you may be tuning in to the Bradcast. Uh, We have, oh boy, here we go again. Another one of those days. A lot of breaking news to get to, and, um, and most of it not very good. We will start with the, uh, with the good news and you know when you're talking about the death penalty and executions, and that is your good news, yeah, it's not a great day. We talked about, uh, just as we went to air on yesterday's program, Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon had issued a stay uh, for Richard Glossop, who was about to be executed in Oklahoma, a state where they've had uh, one execution mishap after another let's just put it kindly that way in any event she uh, she stayed uh, Richard Glossop's execution which is a good thing because there was real questions about what he had to do with this uh, with this murder that he was being put to death for when the man who actually committed the murder the actual the guy who uh, actually uh, beat a guy to death with a baseball bat he he got off with life in prison. Uh, but Richard Glossop, uh, who was said to have been behind that killing, and there is no physical evidence attaching him to the killing, uh, he was to be put to death yesterday at the last minute. Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon uh, stayed his execution just minutes before he would have been killed. And now... Uh, today, well, we've learned a few things since yesterday. One, the reason that they immediately stopped that execution yesterday was because there was a problem with the drug that they were to use. There's three drugs that are used in Oklahoma's uh, execution protocol, and one of the drugs was wrong. They had the wrong drug. They usually use potassium chloride 
And just minutes before they were about to put this guy to death, they found out they had as the third drug potassium acetate instead. And nobody is clear as to why, and that would have been the third drug that was supposed to stop the man's heart. Uh, luckily, they caught it in time. But one day later now, uh, Governor Mary Fallon has issued a surprise order, not just to staying that man's execution, but her attorney general has now gone to court to file a petition in the state's highest criminal court, asking it to indefinitely stay all executions, all executions indefinitely stayed in the state of Oklahoma. Oklahoma AG Pruitt asked the state court of criminal appeals for an indefinite stay of Richard Glossop's execution, as well as those of two other men with upcoming lethal injection dates. The attorney general's office told the court that it needed, quote, time to evaluate the events that transpired on September 30, 2015. When the Oklahoma Department of Corrections uh, and their acquisition of a drug contrary to protocol and the Oklahoma Department of Corrections internal procedures relative to the protocol. So uh, so that is the. Good news as we start today's broadcast. Things go quickly downhill from here. The uh, Although there is a, a, just a bit of a potential good news in what we're seeing now in uh, Hurricane Joaquin, the disturbing news is that it has intensified and intensified very quickly on Thursday to become an extremely dangerous Category 4 storm. As of Thursday afternoon, it continues to hammer the central Bahamas with hurricane-force winds. Now up to 140 miles per hour, storm surges and torrential rains. That's the, uh, well, the, the good news here is that uh, while it looked like it was heading towards the uh, eastern coast of the U.S., it may now not be. More of the models are showing it potentially veering off to sea in the next few days. We'll find out, but it has uh, uh, the hurricane has undergone a rapid intensification, according to the Weather Channel, from a tropical storm to a Category 4 hurricane in less than 36 hours. And it may continue to intensify further into Friday. We'll see, however, if uh, the path, which looks, as I say, less likely to uh, to now hit the uh, the East Coast. Nonetheless, lots of rain, lots of rain already on the East Coast. And um, and if, in fact, that hits, it looks like it would if it did hit, it looks like it would hit uh, the uh, New York, New Jersey area. Uh, or north of there, all of which uh, are still uh, trying to come back from uh, Hurricane Sandy, what, uh, three years ago now in 2012? Yep, 2012, right before the election. Hi, Desi Doyen. There's Desi Doyen, our producer. Um, So uh, maybe, potentially, uh, good news that it won't uh, make landfall in U.S., though there's going to be a lot of rain in any event. Uh, The bad news is that it has become a superstorm in just hours after it had been a, a Category 1. That's part one of the uh, uh, bad news uh, today. Uh, the other bad news, as we go to air, as many as 13 people are now dead, with uh, more than 20 others injured after a gunman opened fire on Thursday morning on the campus of Umqua Community College in southwest Oregon. The gunman was killed in a firefight with Douglas County Sheriff's deputies. 
No officers were injured, said uh, Sheriff John Hanlon. Uh, State Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum told NBC News that 13 people were dead after the events near Roseburg, Oregon, where the shootings were called in uh, 1030 a, approximately 10.30 a.m. on the uh, Pacific Coast time out here. Oregon uh, Governor Kate Brown described the gunman only as a 20-year-old man. We currently don't know anything about his uh, race or anything else about him as we go to air, although Courtney Moore, an 18-year-old student, told the News Review newspaper of Roseburg, Oregon, that she was in a writing class in Snyder Hall when her teacher was shot in the head. The shooter told people to get on the ground and started asking them, uh, asking the people to stand up and state their religion, according to this one account from this 18-year-old student uh, reported by the News Review newspaper. We don't know much more than that at this hour. Um, other than we know, it's uh, yet another terrible incident, another mass uh, shooting in these United States of America. It seems like they never stop. Our friend D.R. Tucker, who writes for Washington Monthly and occasionally for Brad Blog, we've had him on the show, of course, uh, before. Um, he uh, sends uh, he tweets that. Uh, so we have a superstorm on the East Coast brought to us by a problem. Right wingers refuse to acknowledge, followed by another massive school shooting caused by a problem. Right wingers refuse to do anything about. Sounds about right. Thank you, D.R. Another friend of ours, uh, Heather Digby Parton, tweets that today's mass shooting is just another act of nature. Like the hurricane, there's nothing we can do about it. Well, there is something we can do about it. There's something we can do about both of these situations. And that is remove the people from office who refuse to do anything about either of these situations. The people who tell you nothing can be done. Oh, the climate is always changing. There's nothing we can do about it. Uh, oh, there's a shoot. Uh, you know, nothing that uh, stops bad guys. They don't uh, they don't follow laws. So why should we make laws against uh, uh, guns? Why should we make it harder for people to get guns? Why should we make it harder for people to get bullets? Why should we do uh, uh, background checks for everybody who wants to buy a gun? Those criminals, they're not going to go through background checks. So why should we do anything about it? Of course, the fact of the matter is that uh, you could apply that to just about any law. Criminals aren't going to follow the law, so why should we bother to make the laws at all? That is apparently the, uh, the thinking. So what can we do about it? We can vote people out of office who won't do the right thing. Now, you may not feel that taking action about climate change is important. You may not feel that taking action about uh, our uh, public health epidemic in this country, tens of thousands, tens of thousands, I think something 32,000 per year killed by guns in the United States of America. You may not think that 30,000 people dying from guns every year is any kind of problem, as any kind of health issue, then that's fine. Then you don't even need to bother to vote if you don't want to because you're getting your way. But if you give a damn about these issues, if you give a damn about the way that our politicians treat these issues, go to the polls and vote these people out of office. 
Vote them all out of office. Ah, but there's the rub, isn't it? You have to be able to cast your vote, don't you? And in state after state around this uh, country, Republicans are trying to make it harder for you to cast your vote. We're going to be talking about several situations that are really disturbing today. I'm going to be joined in a bit by uh, Julie Ebenstein Ebenstein of uh, of the ACLU to talk about what's going on in Iowa right now, which is absolutely maddening. But frankly, it's reflective of what's going on across the country. One of the places that it is going on is the great state of Alabama, where we told you a few weeks ago that due to budget problems, the state is looking at shutting down uh, almost all of its uh, uh, the, the offices where you would get a driver's license. They got to do it because of budget cuts, so they say. But guess what? In Alabama, effective just last year in Alabama, you now have to have a photo ID to cast a vote at all in Alabama. One of a very small handful of types of photo IDs, a photo ID voting restriction. Never mind that they've got any problems at all with uh, uh, voter fraud uh, due to uh, impersonation at the polling place in Alabama. They put this law in place anyway. As a matter of fact, we don't have that problem anywhere in the country, to be frank. Uh, Justin Levitt, who follows this stuff as closely as anybody, went back all the way back to the year 2000 and was able to find just 31 cases, 31 allegations of uh, polling place voter impersonation out of more than one billion votes cast since 2000. 31. 31 alleged cases, possible cases, cases that might have been deterred by photo ID restrictions across the entire country since 2000 out of one billion cases alleged. And yet in Alabama, the Republicans who run that state now and they run it with an iron fist, those Republicans have now made it impossible for you to vote if you live in Alabama, but you don't have one of the types of photo IDs that they decided you needed to be able to cast your vote. And of course, most people, most people who have the ID would use a driver's license. But guess what? They've just shut down almost all of the state's uh, driver's license bureaus. Most people are now going to have to drive to other counties in order to get a driver's license at all. Writing at AL.com in Alabama, Alabama columnist John Archibald said, Alabama might as well just send an invitation to the Justice Department. No need to reply with an RSVP because we know you'll be here because Alabama just took a giant step backwards, says Archibald. Take a look at the 10 Alabama counties with the highest percentage of non-white registered voters. Alabama just opted to close driver's license bureaus in eight of those 10 Alabama counties. Eight of those 10 Alabama counties with the highest percentage of non-white registered voters. All but two of them will now be closed. Closed, he writes, in a state in which driver's licenses or special photo IDs are required now for voting. It's not just a civil rights violation, he says. It's not just a public relations nightmare. 
It is not just an invitation for worldwide scorn and an alarm bell to the Department of Justice. It is an affront to the very notion of justice in a nation where one man, one votes is as precious as oxygen or so it once was, perhaps. It is a slap in the face to all of those who believe that the stuff we teach the kids about how all of us are created equal. Every single county in which blacks make up more than 75 percent of registered voters will see their driver's license office closed. Every one. And remember, we're not talking about people trying to vote for the first time. We're not talking about people who are trying to register for the first time. We are talking about voters who are actually already registered, lawfully registered, and they will be kept from voting if they do not have one of these photo IDs. And if they want to get one of these uh, photo IDs, like a driver's license or a free one, well, every single county in which blacks make up more than 75% of the registered voters, they won't be able to do so. Not in their counties. John Archibald says, look at the 15 counties that voted for President Barack Obama in the last presidential election in Alabama. The state just decided to close driver's license offices in 53 percent of those counties. He says, look at the five counties that voted most solidly Democratic. They all had their driver's license offices closed. Look at the 10, the 10 counties that voted most solidly for Obama of those Eight had their offices closed, closed. Governor Robert Bentley signed the bill into law that uh, made these uh, photo ID, this uh, photo ID restrictions, despite the fact that complaints uh, were many that such a move would disproportionately disenfranchise black voters. That law went into effect last year and now this happens. So Alabama closes 31 driver's license offices, he writes, and while the cuts come across Alabama, they are deepest in the black belt. The harm is inflicted disproportionately on voters who happen to be black, who happen to be black and poor and live in sparsely populated areas. So roll out the welcome wagon to the Justice Department and tell the world what it already so desperately wants to hear, he says, that Alabama is exactly what they always thought she was, that Alabama refuses to pay for its own government and used it as an excuse to keep black people from the polls, that Alabama hasn't changed a bit. Archibald says... I'd say that they have us all wrong. I'd love to say that they have us all wrong, but the numbers say that they don't. Now, by the way, I should add, the U.S. Department of Justice bears some responsibility here because this law was passed in 2011. It went into effect last year, and they never brought a lawsuit against it, even though the uh, the, the law, the restriction on voting in Alabama is almost identical to the one in Texas that they did challenge and in North Carolina that they did challenge. And the one that uh, was finally, uh, well, was found unconstitutional under state law in Pennsylvania that the Department of Justice was threatening to challenge. In all of those three states, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Texas, it seems to me that the Department of Justice and the Obama administration felt that those might be states that they could win. But when it came to Alabama, they didn't challenge it. When it came to Tennessee with their photo ID restrictions, they didn't challenge it. When it was Kansas, they didn't challenge it. 
So uh, Eric Holder, uh, I've been critical of him for years for all manner of things, but specifically for not coming after voter suppression cases in states that, uh, well, you know, uh, Democrats, they're probably not going to win this state anyway. So we'll focus elsewhere. So they are to blame here uh, for not bringing a suit earlier and saying, well, you know what, there's, it's fine. There's a, there's a driver's license bureau in every county in Alabama. Nothing to worry about. Oh, except unless they decide to shut them down after the law is already in place. Well, if uh, Alabama and if Republicans are willing to do that to voters, to already registered voters, imagine what they would be willing to do to felons, to people who have committed a crime, a felony. Imagine how they would go to keep them from getting anywhere near the ballot box. And that's what we're going to talk about next in Iowa and in Florida with my guest, uh, Julie Ebenstein. She'll be here after this break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. What is love? Evidence is clear. I'm not alone. There are thousands of us here. This is my democracy. You won't go telling me my vote don't matter anymore. Nope, you won't. And is not worth fighting for. Fighting for you and your democracy right here on the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That's right. We are your democracy headquarters because somebody's got to fight for it. A couple of years ago, well, now I guess three or four years ago, back in 2012, I was writing about the state of Iowa at bradblog.com. And this was as their then secretary of state, Matt Schultz, was working hard with the legislature to try to develop a, uh, a photo ID restriction law for the state of Iowa. It was actually 2011. It was the lead up to the 2012 campaign and the lead up to the 2012 Iowa caucuses that would be uh, soon taking place. And I pointed out the fact that while Matt Schultz, the Republican secretary of state in the state of Iowa, was claiming they needed photo ID restriction laws to keep people from committing voter fraud while they were working that out while he as secretary of state was claiming there was massive voter fraud going on that they had to deal with uh, as he was working it out with the legislature as they were trying to find something that would pass legal and constitutional muster i pointed out that well you know what in the iowa republican caucuses which the Republican Party uh, gets to decide the rules for on their own, never mind uh, state law or the Constitution or anything else. They can decide how to run those Iowa Republican caucuses. I pointed out at bradblog.com that, guess what? They were not requiring a photo ID to participate in the Republican caucuses. So if they were concerned, if they were actually concerned about quote-unquote voter fraud, apparently... 
they weren't concerned about it when it was an election that was uh, that only involved their own party. They apparently were only concerned about it when it involved Democrats as well. That wasn't the only uh, type of voter fraud that the uh, state of Iowa was pretending to give a damn about. In 2013, as they pointed out, uh, as was pointed out earlier this year at Think Progress, Kelly Jo Griffin took her four young children with her when she went to vote in the municipal election in her in her town of Montrose, Iowa. Her oldest daughter had just learned about elections and voting in school, and Griffin thought that the outing would be a great experience for the kids to experience democracy in action. But a few weeks later, Griffin received a call from a state division of criminal investigation officer who was sitting in a car outside her house asking her to verify the signature on the ballot that she had cast. He assured me I was not in trouble, but but he was just in the area doing some signature verification, Griffin said. Confused, she contacted her local police station after the officer left. Griffin later learned that the county attorney had decided to press charges against her for perjury. Suddenly, she was facing prison, uh, facing time in prison for attempting to cast a ballot as a former convicted felon. Griffin had served a period of probation Almost five years, five years earlier for delivering a small amount of cocaine, which was a low level drug offense. And she was unaware that her voting rights had been permanently revoked, permanently, permanently revoked. Now, if Griffin had attempted to vote before January 2011 in Iowa, she would have been in the clear. She would have had no problem at all. But on, uh, but on the very first day of the uh, term of the newly elected Republican governor, Terry Branstad, he issued an executive order reversing the former governor, Tom Vilsack, the Democratic uh, governor, reversing his 2005 order, which had restored the right to vote to felons who had been disqualified in the state. A total of 110,000 people at the time. So they were free to vote. They had served their time. They were free to vote until January 2011 when the new Republican governor came in and said, nope, they can't do it anymore by executive order. They now have to come through me and only me to get permission to cast a vote, even though they've served their time. Now, Griffin, uh, her case, uh, she was brought to uh, bar- brought to trial, and she was eventually acquitted by uh, by a jury of any voter fraud charges. She avoided jail time, but she still cannot vote for the rest of her life, and so she's now the lead plaintiff in the Iowa ACLU's lawsuit challenging Iowa's practice of felon disenfranchisement under Iowa law. Those who commit, quote unquote, infamous crimes have their voting rights revoked for life. We had a ruling in this case just this week. Iowa State Chief Judge Arthur Gamble ruled uh, in the case of Kelly Jo Griffin um, that, uh, remember, she was a woman who thought her voting rights had been restored after she completed probation on a 2008 felony uh, cocaine deliver, delivery charge. So under the policy, that the one that is now being challenged, uh, the Republican governor, Terry Brandstand, uh, Brandstad, his executive order requires felons to petition his office to seek restoration of their voting rights. 
They must come through him. And that makes Iowa one of only three states, that's Kentucky and Florida and Iowa, with such a strict voter restoration process. The Brandstad uh, process requires ex-felons to complete a detailed application, submit proof that court costs have been paid, and provide a detailed criminal history. And, of course, the order has caused confusion because some felons automatically had their rights restored under the older uh, Vilsack rules, the Democratic governor, while others had to follow this new petition process. So this week, Judge Gamble, in this case, has upheld the state law that disqualifies felons from voting, but said that the state Supreme Court needs to sort out the confusion that it caused last year when it ruled that not all felons are automatically disenfranchised. Only some. I guess only some that have committed, uh, what, infamous crimes, whatever those are. Uh, By the way, the AP found that in 2012, less than a dozen Iowans had their uh, had successfully made it through Brandstad's process of restoring their voting rights. In 2013, the governor restored the rights to just 21 Iowans out of thousands being discharged from prison or parole. Here to explain this fine mess, where it goes from here, and somehow if those tens of thousands of former felons who have served their time in Iowa will ever get their voting rights back, We are joined by Julie Ebenstein. She's staff attorney with the ACLU Voting Rights Project. They are focused on challenging the proliferation of voter suppression laws throughout the country. I suspect they are very busy right around now and have been for too many years. Previously, Julie was a staff attorney with the ACLU of Florida. Oh, yeah, she was busy. Or she was counsel in several voting rights cases, including litigation preventing reduction to early voting, challenging Florida's purge of state voter laws, and successful constitutional challenge to restrictions on voter registration drives. Wow, sounds like the index uh, at bradblog.com. Her current focus is on voter suppression in Iowa, North Carolina, Kansas, and Ferguson, Missouri. Julie Ebenstein joins us uh, for the first time on the Bradcast. Welcome to the Bradcast, Julie. Thank you, Brad. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Uh, By the way, is it Ebenstein or Ebenstein? Steen. All right. I got it right. Accidentally. What are the chances? Uh, Okay. so please, if you don't mind, Julie, explain the ruling this week in the uh, Kelly Joe Griffin case in Iowa. Uh, She was not found guilty of voter fraud, but she's now challenging the the state law, the Constitution or Governor Brandstad's process itself. Sure. So uh, Kelly Joe Griffin, like you said, was convicted uh, in 2008 of a nonviolent drug related offense thought she had her rights, her right to vote restored, and when she went to the polls to teach her kids about voting, um, instead uh, she was charged with perjury for the very act of registering and voting. Mm-hmm. Um, we believe that people who serve their sentence should have the opportunity to, to come back into the community and fully participate. Um, and that's really at heart what this case is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, the Iowa Constitution provides that citizens can be disenfranchised only for what's called an infamous crime. And so what we've asked the courts to interpret is uh, that term, infamous crime. In the mid-19th century, where this term was pretty much developed, the meaning of the word was the most vile, base, or detestable. So uh, when you think about it, drug crimes, which are, of course, driven by a number of different factors, uh, poverty, addiction, other other health-related problems, um, are not something that should be seen as a vile crime or a vile act that 
exempt somebody from the entire democratic process for the rest of their life. Uh, the the whole mass incarceration and and overcriminalization of drug usage mm-hmm. um, has taken so many people in Iowa, like you said, certainly in Florida, mm-hmm. out of the democratic process and prevented them from fully coming back to being contributing citizens. That is something we we need to stop in a number of different states. Now, the court's decision uh, this past week it was a mixed decision. So on the one hand, um, they they did deny our claim that because Kelly's crime was not an infamous crime, she what we argued was that she had never lost her voting rights in the first place, that she should have been entitled to vote all along. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the court the court disagreed with that uh, right now, but he did have say a few encouraging things. He recognized, like you said, a case called Chido back in twenty fourteen, which gave um, which related to the conviction of aggravated misdemeanors. Uh, for acts that are considered felonies under federal law and decided that people could not be disenfranchised for aggravated misdemeanors. When he looked at Kelly's case, he said he recognized Chido and he said that that case uh, gives a strong signal that um, the mooring of this previous decision, disenfranchising so many cases, may not be secure for long, but uh, recognized that as a district judge, he was tied by the lines of precedent. So we've already um, mm-hmm. appealed from this ruling or, or put in a notice of appeal. And we, we really figured all along this was an issue that the Supreme Court of Iowa needs to take up to decide once and for all. Mm-hmm. Who is considered someone who's committed an infamous crime and, um, and can they, based on that crime, be disenfranchised for the rest of their life? So and- we're hopeful that the Supreme Court will review it. And let me go even a bit larger here, uh, even beyond uh, figuring out what is uh, the most vile, base, or detestable crimes, as they're using here. I've got uh, constitutional uh, concerns about uh, this law and, I guess, this Iowa state uh, constitution provision. I've got concerns about it on a constitutional basis, on a a federal constitutional basis. Uh, Among those concerns... Uh, first, well, let, let me understand this. If uh, this woman, Kelly Jo Griffin, if she had voted prior to Branstad coming in, and I suspect there are other felons who uh, who, who, who served their time, who, who whatever the punishment was, they did that, and then they went back to voting under the old process. Were those felons, those former felons, did they also have their rights removed again under the new uh, process by the new Republican governor? Uh, I see. No, no. He, Brent said could not, uh, he couldn't deprive them of their rights again after they had already been restored. So up until 2011, there was an automatic process for rights restoration. I believe it was when, when someone was released or when they satisfied the, the conditions of restoration, mm-hmm. automatically they would regain their right to vote. In Executive Order 70 in 2011, uh, Brent said did away with the automatic restoration process and now requires the complicated application process that you described. So as you can imagine, as with Kelly, uh, this created a lot of confusion. People who knew the system to automatically restore their rights prior to 2011 um, now may not be aware. And, And for Kelly in particular, as came out during her criminal trial where she was charged with perjury, uh, when she was sentenced to probation, the mm-hmm. restoration process was automatic, as in 2008. When she finished her probation, the restoration process had changed. I see. There was, 
there was no way she had never been informed, of course, of the change. So when she's sentenced, she thinks the the rule is you're finished with your sentence, you can vote again. And by the time she's um, she's completed her probation, the rules have completely changed. So if someone had, in fact, and and again, pardon me, it's very confusing, but I suspect that's really part of the problem here. Uh, if she had finished her sentence or her probation prior to uh, January 2011, when uh, Terry Branstad issued the new executive order, if she had, if the probation had completed prior, or anybody whose probation uh, had been completed prior to that date, they are allowed to vote? Right. So if their sentence was completed uh, prior to 2011, uh-huh. they would have automatically had their voting rights restored uh, okay. upon completion of their sentence. Okay. So don't we have now a, a different process? Isn't this... Uh, uh, this does not seem like equal justice here. You've got the same uh, different people who may have committed the very same crime and even uh, carried out the very same sentence, whatever that was, jail time or probation. And yet some have the right to vote. Others do not. Isn't that unconstitutional just on its face? I'm not an attorney, so I don't know, but it sure seems like it to me. Well, it's a question of, of um, how the restoration process is implemented. And, and you're really focusing on, I agree with you, what's a very big problem, which is that when rights restoration is dependent on the clemency process, mm-hmm. so it's dependent on the, uh, the office of the governor, whether the governor decides to allow for restoration automatically, or whether the governor says you have to jump through these 20 hoops uh, to apply for restoration, is up to the governor. And, and what you're describing, the confusion in Iowa, we saw the same thing in Florida around 2011, is that the clemency process is obviously subject to the, uh, the whims or politics mm-hmm. of that particular governor. You have governors who, um, who believe that the right to vote should be restricted or restricted for life for those who commit uh, nonviolent crimes, mm-hmm. who make the process quite a bit more difficult. Um, Governor Scott in Florida and Governor Brownstead in Iowa. Right. You have you have other governors who understand that uh, automatic restoration at the completion of one sentence is really the best way to bring people back into the community and back into the democratic process. Well, who set up an automatic uh, restoration process. But uh, but I have to say, I mean, and of course that is uh, subject, like you say, to the whims of the governor. This is not even a legislative, uh, you know, an act that's passed. This was an executive order, as I understand it. I mean, that sounds to me, one person making that decision uh, for the voting rights of tens of thousands, and in the case of Florida, you mentioned, uh, I think, over a million uh, uh, you know, one person making that decision. I mean, that sounds to me like the very tyranny that right-wingers pretend to be so concerned about, uh, you know, in, in other cases. But here they are supporting it. But I, I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to say it seems like it's uh, not equal, that, that one person uh, can, can commit one crime and have the very same sentence as another person who commits the very same crime gets the very same sentence. One person gets their right to vote back. The other person does not, just because of the whim of one, uh, one governor. That seems in and of itself unconstitutional, is that uh, challenge part of your case, part of the ACLU's case against what is going on in Iowa? We're not challenging the clemency process itself. Uh, we're, we're challenging the initial uh, 
mm-hmm. disenfranchisement based on the crime that she committed. Now, what you're, but but you you raise a, an important point, which is that clemency is a discretionary process. Uh, so the better rule is not to rely on what sort of procedure the governor has put in place to restore people's rights, but to have a fair rule in the first instance mm-hmm. as to who uh, loses their rights and who maintains their rights. Again, because of the nature of Kelly's crime, um, we don't think that the Constitution allows for her to be disenfranchised in the first place. And let me go broader still, because this is always something that has uh, sort of drove me crazy, uh, Julie Ebenstein, and I realize it's a short drive, but um, it seems to me, particularly, uh, you, you had mentioned the, you know, the epidemic, the over, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the over imprisoning that we have done over the past, uh, what, two decades now, um, and criminalization. Uh, it seems to me that those people, uh, who are currently in prison, never mind having served their time and getting out and, and, and finishing with probation and uh, begging and pleading the governor, may I please vote again? It seems to me that the people in prison who are most directly affected by the laws that have been changed to increase the prison population, that they have as much right, they should have as much right as any American to vote. Even though they are in prison, they are really the most directly affected by the laws, by the people who are elected uh, to office. Seems like they should have a vote here. Um, is is this a constitutional issue as far as uh, the U.S. Constitution? Is there anything in there that, uh, you know, w- would would make it illegal to keep prisoners from being able to vote, to your knowledge? I know that's a broad question, but it drives well, me crazy. Right, and, and uh, I certainly agree with you that by exempting uh, many, most, in some states, every person mm-hmm. who has had the experience of being incarcerated, you're really um, you're missing uh, an important voice um, of these particular people. And, and I would certainly hope that, at the very least, their families who have been through uh, that process with them would would make the time to to use their voice to vote and bring that really into the political fold. And I do see uh, the the issues related to disenfranchisement as really a collateral consequence to um, incarceration and certainly mass incarceration for the last two decades. There are some countries uh, that do protect the right to vote from prison. This is not an issue that came up in Kelly Joe's case because, of course, she was only on probation. Mm-hmm. She didn't serve a term of incarceration. Um, but the disenfranchisement laws, like you said, they can be complicated because they're a patchwork from state to state. Right. Uh, for the most part, states, at the very least, require that somebody complete their sentence. So if they are sentenced to incarceration, they don't have their rights restored uh, until they complete that sentence. Again, whether it's incarceration or probation sentence. Um, but I do think that, at the very least, folks who who have been uh, convicted of an offense, who perhaps have gone to prison but have have served the term of their sentence and have rejoined the community, certainly we need their voice and their experience to become part of the polity of the democratic process. And yeah, and and I really would love to see, and maybe it's already been tested, but I really would love to see uh, you know a, 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 a case that challenged. 
uh, whether it is constitutional at all to restrict the right to vote uh, to people who are currently in prison. Uh, but uh, let's go back to uh, Florida since you mentioned that, uh, Julie Ebenstein, and since I know you worked there for many years on cases down there. Uh, they had an almost identical case where the uh, previous governor um, had restored rights for felons to vote in the state of Florida. And then here comes Rick Scott, comes into power, a Republican, and says, no, no, I'm turning that all back and they have to come through me as well. Again, hundreds of thousands of, of votes, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, now have to or voters or potential voters now have to get the permission of the governor in the state of Florida, the important swing state of Florida. Has that process been challenged down in Florida? And if so, what's the disposition of that as we head into 2016? Sure. Well, Florida, of course, is a, is a special uh, case in many ways. Um, it's, it's a nice, state, nice so. way of putting it, Julie. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> well, when it comes to voting, it is, it is <laughs> yes. extra special. Um, Florida, of course, like Iowa, has a lifetime ban on voting for people who have committed a felony. And as a result of that, there's over 1.5 million citizens in Florida who are disenfranchised. So it's about 10% of the voting age population. One in five African-American men in Florida who remain disenfranchised. It's really a sizable uh, piece of the electorate in a state that can very well turn a presidential election, um, excluded completely from the, the democratic process. Did you, say one in, did you say one in five black men in the state of Florida are disenfranchised? Unfortunately, I did, yes. Wow. Okay. Go ahead. I didn't yeah, mean so to cut you off. It's just amazing. No, that's fine. We're, 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 that's, that's important. We're missing uh, the voice of a, a massive part of yep. um, uh, our fellow citizens yep. in the state of Florida, and Florida is such a big part of any national election. Yep. Um, in 2011, like in Iowa, uh, you saw a change um, with the governor where the prior restoration process under Charlie Crist was automatic, uh, and so there are years where over 100,000 people will have their rights restored. Once Governor Scott came into power, he once again, by tinkering with this clemency process, changed the rules related to restoration. So, and he went even farther than, than uh, Iowa has gone um, in Executive Order 70. Governor Scott decided not only that you have to jump through these hoops of an application process, in order to get your rights restored, but there's actually a five or seven year waiting period mm. past when you complete your sentence before you can even apply to get your rights restored. And then, of course, because it's the clemency process, uh, your application can be denied at his discretion. So on top of that, at the time that the rules changed, there were quite a few people who were waiting in line, so to speak, um, to get their rights restored. They had already applied for restoration, uh, and their application had not been processed. Once the rules changed and said five to seven years, they basically got kicked out of that line and had to wait another five or seven years before they could even apply again. So you have people interested uh, taking affirmative steps to exercise their right to vote, realizing how important it is, realizing uh, that they want and need to have their voice heard, and despite all of their efforts, are just entirely unable to do that sometimes for an act they committed decades ago or, or an act like a drug offense that's related to an addiction problem or a health problem, uh, which they've certainly paid for, but um, hopefully also recovered from. It's just amazing to me. In, uh, in the 2008 election, according to the Sentencing Project, 
5.3 million Americans, that is one in 40 adults, were unable to vote due to a felony conviction. 2.2 million, or one in every 13 nationally, black adults is disenfranchised. One in every 13 black adults across the country disenfranchised. Uh, and black adults are four times more likely to lose their voting rights than the rest of the adult population. But 5.3 million Americans uh, due to felony convictions. The, just an unbelievable outrage, especially with uh, elections uh, as much as competitive as they are now, as much money is uh, spent on them now. Uh, the fact that we are sitting back and allowing this disenfranchisement uh, in so many places uh, and frankly, it's not being challenged by the DOJ. The DOJ is, is you know, challenging certain laws in certain states, photo ID, uh, you know, issues in some states, but not in others. We were talking about it in a previous segment. Uh, they didn't challenge almost an identical law in Alabama that they did uh, challenge in Texas and North Carolina. And now they're going to pay a price for it, it seems, because they're shutting down driver's license offices in uh, in Alabama. Uh, so some of these laws are challenged, some aren't, but uh, what we're looking at, I, I think we need a lot more challenges. And uh, thankfully, the ACLU has been uh, challenging these laws in a lot of states. And um, any chance that the Florida law, before I uh, let you go here, Julie, uh, will that be in place, both the Florida law and the Iowa law still be in place for yet another presidential election cycle as we head to 2016? Well, since we've already noticed our appeal of the decision from uh, from this week in the Iowa case, we're hoping that the Supreme Court in Iowa will will take up the case, hear the case, and uh, uh, of course, we hope decide in our favor so that we can have this issue resolved prior to the 2016 election. And Florida, that that is still in place, however, to your knowledge. The, Yes, the the lifetime felon disenfranchisement law and the clemency process as the only avenue to restore one's one's rights is still in place. Um, of course, if somebody has lost their rights in Florida, uh, at the very least, they they uh, should try to restore them through the clemency process. But like you said, it's really it's shameful the way that we treat our fellow citizens because of a prior conviction, sometimes decades ago. And the confluence of overcriminalization, mass incarceration, and the ongoing collateral consequences of that, which is uh, disenfranchisement sometimes for life, uh, is something that really rips at our democracy. It yeah. does. It does indeed. Uh, Julie Abenstein, uh, great talking with you about this. Hope to talk to you more uh, in the future about all of these cases. I know you're working on another case in Ferguson, Missouri right now and, and elsewhere. So much to talk about, so much voter suppression, so little time, unfortunately. Uh, but really great to speak with you, Julie. I hope to do it again soon. Thanks very much, Ted. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Just uh, unbelievable, maddening. Uh, I guess, well, here, this will cheer me up a little. According to the National Conference of State Legislatures, 28 states passed new laws expanding felon voting rights between 1996 and 2008. So there's that. The clock's been turned back, obviously, since then in, in many cases. But uh, during that time, from 96 to 2008, seven states repealed lifetime disenfranchisement laws, at least for some ex-offenders, and 12 states simplified the process for regaining voting rights by making changes like eliminating a waiting period or streamlining the paperwork process. 
So I don't know, uh, one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back. I don't know how the saying goes, but uh, I don't care who they are. Anyone, anyone who is kept from participating in their democracy, if they wish to, anyone of any party denied their right to vote. Man, that makes me angry. In any event, we're going to take a break so I can cool down and we will be back with more Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Yes, that music is calming me down already. Thank you, Desi. Uh, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com in our last few minutes here. Um, over the break, uh, President Barack Obama came out to speak about the Oregon shooting, a visibly angry, I would say, President Obama. He said that our the gun laws in this nation, these gun safety laws are insufficient. Uh, he hopes and prays he does not have to come out again in his tenure as president to uh, to comfort families after a shooting like this. But he suspects that won't be the case. I suspect it won't be the case either. He he will be back, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, things need to change in this country. And that's why we talk about democracy as much as we do. Because short of violent revolution, that's the way we change things in this country. At the ballot box. And that's why access to the ballot box is so important. And that's why it's so important that when uh, you vote, your vote counts. It's counted accurately. It's counted accurately in a way that you know it is counted accurately. Uh, Desi Doyne, you had a point about my uh, conversation there with the Julie Ebenstein. Yes, uh, we, um, we've talked in the past about how uh, racial disparity in, in sentencing across the country, you know, where, where uh, African-Americans are incarcerated at far higher rates mm-hmm. than whites for the same crimes, the exact same crimes. So I think that that, you know, she mentioned... The, the the confluence of mass incarceration and overcriminalization. I think that in combination with the racial disparity in sentencing and the private prison industrial complex. Oh, there's that. That on top of di- the, yeah. all of these new, these laws that disenfranchise ex-felons. I mean, all of this rolls together to disenfranchise a vast segment of the American population. Disenfra- disenfranchise ex-felons and it disenfranch- uh, disenfranchises current felons. And when you have such a huge African-American uh, 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 population in jail, or of course, yeah. uh, that affects that affects the votes, and it's a racially ra- uh, racially disproportionate uh, effect. And I would just and I would just say that it's uh, this, this combination of disenfranchising ex felons and the overcriminalization of certain segments of the population. That's that's kind of a feature, not a bug. I think you're right. Um, very quickly before we go, uh, we don't cover uh, the horse race the way every other program in the world does. We cover the track conditions. That's what we've been talking about here for the last hour or so. But uh, the uh, numbers are now out for the uh, third quarter fundraising. Hillary Clinton, uh, her campaign raised more than $28 million in the third, uh, third quarter of 2015. Sounds like a lot of money, but it is only slightly more than the $25 million that Bernie Sanders raised. So Hillary Clinton, a wash in money, and yet just barely more 
than Bernie Sanders. Sanders' uh, fundraising is now closing in on Clinton's despite only ever headlining seven fundraisers as a candidate, according to CNN. A bulk of Clinton's haul comes from uh, personally headlining these, uh, these fundraisers. Clinton personally headlined 58 fundraisers from July 1 to September 30th, a pace identical to the 58 fundraisers she headlined in the second quarter. Uh, by contrast, Sanders uh, only uh, he rarely uh, personally uh, headlines fundraisers. Earlier uh, at an event this summer in Seattle, he joked that he was a little uncomfortable speaking at a packed bar where people paid to see him. Almost all of Sanders' money came from campaign's uh, rather incredible online fundraising operation, which is now keeping up, by the way, with Barack Obama's fundraising operation from 2008. Uh, Sanders' campaign has received 1.3 million donations from 650,000 donors since launching earlier this year. That is amazing. What's more, as CNN notes, uh, Clinton's fundraisers raised uh, often asked donors to pay $2,700. That's the uh, primary campaign maximum. So many of Clinton's donors are likely maxed out, whereas Sanders' average campaign donation was just $24.86. So the candidate can go back to the supporters again and again and again, where Clinton can't because she's maxed out with some of these people, with many of these people. Uh, after releasing uh, the uh, fundraising numbers on Wednesday night, hours before the quarter officially closed, Clinton aides touted their number as the largest off-year third-quarter haul by a non-incumbent, whatever that means. But it was just barely more than Bernie Sanders. Uh, and uh, she, yes, she is a non-incumbent, but uh, she's about as close to an incumbent as you can get uh, without actually being an incumbent. Uh, Clinton said that uh, 93 percent of her third quarter donations were one hundred dollars or less. So there's that. But Sanders averaged just twenty four dollars and eighty six cents and is just three million shy of what Hillary Clinton raised. When oh when will a corporate mainstream media notice? Or they can just keep pretending it's a race between Hillary and Joe Biden, who's not even in the race. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, to Julie Ebenstein of the uh, of the ACLU. And my thanks, as always, to you for spending part of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it as ever at bradblog.com or over at iTunes. Drop us email. We are bradcast at bradblog.com. And find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Hey.